Tad, you say that we are not subjects who desire to know, but instead subjects who simply desire. So even though knowledge is power, the desire of new knowledge, like you said, it gets us in trouble with the big other. That's that's this transitional piece here. So what is this big other? How do you define this big other? Okay, so I have a story. Um, I use it briefly in God is Unconscious and then like all through it, like in a, like a bigger format in, in The Cynic and The Fool. But let's suppose... Uh, you have this uh, kid that grows up doing everything her parents want, right? So she dates the right people, gets the right grades. She's a team player, like teachers love her, et cetera, et cetera. We've never All- met really, right? <laughs> okay, well, I, I hope when this turns dark in a moment, I hope it's okay. Um, so uh, let's let's just say, so like, let's say that, um, okay, so this kid is like model child, but let's say that everything, whether she realizes it or not, is 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 connected to the death of, uh, or so to, to, to the approval of the parents, right? Um, and then one day she gets the call about like the, the parents late at night, one night, the other driver um, did not see, like they were drunk, they didn't see the car coming, and the, the parents are gone now right but what happens in that moment so so somebody who loses their parents when they've been living their entire life by the desires of these others um what happens then is she freed like in no sense right like the death of the father makes the injunction all the more like important to obey right so uh she you know might go into a depression might wish to no longer be a mother her marriage might break down her friendships her like work relationships begin to fray she goes to the analyst office one day to kind of try to figure out like what's going on in my life why have I lost all desire so um, what does the analyst need to to do in that situation right um, so the girl like has lost like desire but also is still like she's changing language uh, but in a sense she's not uh, her language is going to change, right? And this is kind of how theology works, right? Um, she's going to go from saying, I hope my parents are proud of me to I hope my parents would have been proud of me or like I hope they're looking down from heaven proud of me. She's, the, her language is going to rearrange. I can't emphasize this enough because this is a lot of what goes on in deconstruction circles, right? Her language will change but her behavior will remain the exact same, right? So I hope my parents are proud of me becomes, I hope my parents would have been proud of me, right? So the analyst does not need to convince her that the parents are dead, right? The the analyst needs to convince the parents that they're dead in a sense, right? Because she's still going to keep trying to appro- get the approval, right? That she can never get, right? Now, if you could ask the parents like, hey, like what did she need to do to please you? Of course, they would say what any decent parent would say would just be like, that's she like nothing, right? Like she always had it. Uh, she didn't have to do anything, right? But, but in a sense, it doesn't matter if the big other is real or not. We live for the pleasure of the big other, right? Um, the big other, can be a god, it can be a parent, it can be a, a significant other, it can be like some imagine, like what is my boss one of me, what is my culture one of me, like um, I don't know, if I'm like some sort of like uh, disenfranchised, like insecure white male, like what does maleness want of me, or something like that, like so we're seeing a lot of that right now, right? Um, so so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be what we would call, for lack of better words, concrete, right? You know, no. it doesn't have to be my father. It can be something as abstracted as maleness, whiteness. Yeah, Whatever. well, in a sense, it's never concrete, right? Like, so the big other is like a position, in a sense, of the, in the mind that you will project something onto. So but can when, the church be the other? Because I've heard some theologians say that that's not 
a good way to talk about what some of us have gone through. But it sounds like the church can be the other. Yeah, well, in a sense, like, so what I'm saying is, like, the big other is always a fiction. It's always a trap, but we fill that, that, va- that role is going to get filled with something, right? So that's why, like, someone like... Uh, Lacan or Nietzsche might say that like an atheist is just kind of someone who maybe replaced a bad God with a better God, right? Or something like that. Right. Um, so, uh, or, you know, to, to be an atheist, uh, truly is to have no more gods, which is in a sense impossible, right? Like you're going to fill that gap with something. And I don't mean to like equivocates, like all gods are the same or anything like I'm not on that like equivocation train. Right. Um, but, um, another way to say it is like, uh, when I ask, like, am I doing something that I can be proud of? I might ask, like, is Devin, my wife, like, proud of me, right? And I might try to get live for her approval. And if you asked her directly or if I asked her directly, she would say, like, of course, like, like, that's ridiculous. Like, what a stupid thing to, like, worry about. Like, I'm only with you because, like, I'm proud of you and I believe in you, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but we let, like, this big other's need for, like, the other's affection, like, we let it infect us in various different ways. And um, I might, like, deconstruct one God and replace it with another God or deconstruct one God and like live for like the God of like science is real or some like shit like that. Right. Like something that doesn't matter also, but like, um, it, yeah, in a sense, like, so we're always like looking. So the, the lack of a big other, um, is like psychotic actually. Right. Like the, the lack of any sort of regulatory behavior, like the, the expectations of society, right. Like you actually need that to be like an, a, like a citizen living in the world is you need kind of, you need to be thinking about like what a society want from me in some respects. Right. But it becomes toxic when it becomes overdetermined, um, especially when a person in authority uses like their position as a big other, but rest with God as a big other, but rest with like hell as your punishment. If you don't believe in these other big, other. like it, it becomes like the demand becomes like infinitely more. Right. Um, so, so like, what does the healthy one look like? Like the healthy relationship with the big other. Well, I mean, like maybe we can think of it this way. Like, so, so one way to uh, think of like the opposite of that would be like the parent who tells the kid, uh, you don't have to visit grandma, but like, Hey, you know, like grandma really likes to see you. And like, if you were a good kid, you'd want to visit grandma. Like you'd actually want to. Right. So like, it's not just the parent telling them, but also the parent saying, by the way, if you were a decent human, you would want this, right? So, like, you actually need to, like, self-regulate and, like, over-determine yourself, right? Um, so, I think the opposite of that is, like, trying to look for ways to free desire and to to remove um, um, demands on people to desire certain things. So, I mean, anytime you're you're telling someone else what they should desire, like, that, that should be a, a red flag to any of us or, in, in theological terms, like, what we should believe, right? Because you can't force yourself to believe things, right? You can, you can foster certain beliefs or you can suppress them, uh, but, uh, well, or repress them in a sense, right? But like you, you can't tell someone what to believe, like their, your beliefs kind of choose you more than you choose them. Right. So, um, so to me, like a more healthy relationship with the big other is thinking through, okay, like, what do I actually desire? Like what, what's my history? Like, why do I desire the things that I want to do in my life? Um, and just being honest about that and being like, okay, my desires are never a hundred percent my own. Right. If I had grown up in a world that was not 
super overly toxic evangelical, I would not be doing the work I do right now. Like, I really enjoy the work I do right now for the most part, and I'm glad to be doing it. Um, so the very fact that these con- these desires were conditioned for me is not a reason to abandon them. But if I was finding, hey, this, this trajectory, this stuff that I'm doing is like toxic and I'm not finding life in it, then I would need to think, okay, yeah, like that's because they were planted for me and like, I don't have to do this. I can, I can go and do something else if I want. Right. You're probably going to hate this, but it seems very relational to me. Right. It seems like the, the biggest problem with a big other is, is having a hierarchical kind of view. It reminds me of, I forgot what writer it was that talks about how, um, I think it was American evangelicalism, how it's prompting Christians for a fascist takeover. It's called Christo fascism. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know that it reminded me of that because of the, that because of that unhealthy relationship to the big other. Yeah, well, in, if you go back in like an American history, like even to the Great Awakening, so it is some like I've been doing some research on this right now, but um, like one of the really interesting things in, especially in the South, where like pre Civil War they had zero public education, like in in the South, right? Um, whereas in the North they actually had like public schools that were state funded and everything. Um, like during the Great Awakenings, in an environment where you had zero education and literacy rates that were like in the thirty percent, right? Um, you had like like preachers going around saying like, read the Bible for yourself. Don't trust the pastors. Like if someone's seminary trained, like they don't know the Bible any better than you, you can just like read it. And That's there's like, there's, yeah, but like there's like, a, there's like a good like personal responsibility aspect to that. Like there's like a democratic like idealism in that, but there's also like a rejection of expertise, like a skepticism towards those who might know something. Right. And so you end up in this culture where like knowledge is bad. Expertise is bad. Training is bad. Like don't trust that world, right? And so you get these kind of self-styled charlatans running around on horses between tent meetings in an environment where like 30% of people can't even read and like the rest don't go to school. Um, and you're like all being told like, don't trust like, well, in a sense in our language, cause this is where I, like I thought of this, don't trust the big other of like the seminary trained clergyman, trust the big other of whatever your narcissism wants to believe today. You know? Right. Just, just go, just go with it. Right. Like, and, and that's in a sense that that democratic spirit can be much more oppressive. Uh, you know, doesn't matter if you don't know anything, just go, just run with it. Like see where it goes. It's really weird. Cause like the tradition I came from, I heard that message a lot that you go to seminary and become like the cemetery but the moment you have a call, you need to do everything you can to go to seminary. Like, it's such a weird, like, cycle of, like... Well, that sounds like a trap. Like, consciously, they want you to be educated, uh-huh. but they're feeding this message to the people saying, well, you can't trust them once they've well, been to seminary. Well, that's the spring break thing, right? Mm-hmm. You're not doing anything, so you feel bad that you're not doing anything. And then once you go do the thing, you <laughs> yeah, feel shame that you got drunk. Go. Yeah, the it's the same thing, but it's just seminary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so is the what would you say is the job or the work, for lack of better words, of psychoanalysis, right? If If you can't, if replacing the big other is just going to, you know, it's going to get filled by something else, is it just raising, is it bringing 
my ignorance is going to show, but is it, is it bringing the stuff that's unconscious to consciousness or is it just a general awareness of your limitations as a person? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a number of different ways it gets formulated. So like, so in, in that the idea of bringing the, whatever is unconscious into, into conscious is, is one way that, um, I can't remember if it was Freud or Lacan worded like a goal, but like they, they've all played with like lots of different definitions. What are we trying to do? It's no different than any other psychotherapy. Like what are you trying to do? Like with like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, Mm -hmm. um, are you just trying to get people to act more normal? What's normal? Like is normal me when I'm depressed or me when I'm happy or me when I'm just kind of like (laughs) meh, like me when I'm stressed, me when I'm not stressed. Like, yeah. Like, so like, but, but any, any kind of therapy has to answer this question. Like what's our actual goal, right? Um, is it just become like more well-adjusted citizens? Like, are we just training people to be cogs in the capitalist machine? Like that's kind of sad. Um, so Early Freud, like he, I don't know if this was completely a joke, but it was said as a joke, is uh, the goal is to change absolute human misery into just ordinary unhappiness, right? Which I love, right? Like, so, so like that was like, I was like, actually that, would, that might not be so bad, right? Um, but then there was also this formulation of bringing whatever's unconscious into the conscious to kind of like try to deal with those symptoms. Um, Lacan at one point says like the goal is to traverse your fundamental fantasies so that you can live according to your own desires instead of the desires of the other. And I, I think that like, that's probably the more, the most helpful concept to me is like, am I acting in according to my desire in, in accordance with my own desires, which is, which is tragic actually, because like some people have really shitty desires that should not be acted on. Right. Like, so there's, there's also that problem. Um, and I like, I don't quite know where to go with that. Right. Like, um, but, but I can definitely say that I think like, and this comes out of like the, a seminar called the ethics of psychoanalysis where he says, like, I can't tell you constructively what ethics should be. Um, and I use that to say, like, I can't tell you what, constructively what theology should be, um, but we can say what ethics is not, and that's living according to the desires of another, right? Like, so the, the moment that you cede your responsibility to somebody else, your life loses motion, you lose, like, your your drive to do things. Um, if we're talking about theology, you lose your drive to think thoughts for yourself, you start, like, submitting to the desires of somebody else, right? So that's the kind of the way I think of it is, like, the, the goal of all this should be asking like where are the places where I'm living according to the desires of another and do I want to like because in some cases I do like I actually do care about the desires of like my partner um, or certain other responsibilities that I have in life that's fine but I don't want to live like the rest of my life like trying to get from for example like out from under the burden of like tragic religious beliefs right like I want to get to a point where I kind of say okay that happened uh there was a lot of bad, there was some good time to traverse that fantasy and move on. Like what else do I want in life? Right. You know, so, so I got, I have a couple of questions. One, and and I think we've had this conversation in the past, but it's, it's good to, to say on here. And it's that it seems like that process of bringing the unconscious to consciousness can't be done alone. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't self analyze. Correct. Right. Yeah. And then this shit, the second question, what you think, like, let me just riff on that. Cause like, I, I think we were talking about that in the context of, I think that's why groups like this are helpful. Right. And people come into like a group like this birth theology thing. And then they will eventually leave right before you stop. Probably like you probably have that like here and there. And like, uh, any community has that, like any friend group has people that come in and leave, like the, like the university definitely has that, like my students, like a church has that, like any, any group has like people who are there for a stage 
and then move on. And that's particularly like that's completely fine, but like we actually need like groups where we can have some sorts of discussions in order to reflect back on us. Like, what do we like believe? Like, it was, it's particularly helpful because like you hang around with like a group like Bruceology for like long enough and you realize, oh, I've actually heard this story before. Like, again, like I, I know where this goes, right? Like I, I could probably tell you with like only minor details wrong what your past is. Right. Um, and because, because, and it's actually, and it's kind of like tragic, like, so sometimes like people actually find it very helpful when I tell them like, Hey, I just want you to know, like your story is like super boring and mine is too. And like, you should be really happy about that. Like, cause, cause it's like really you're common. Not crazy. Yeah. No, because you're not crazy. Like this is like, this is like a thing that happens in this world. Um, and there's certain patterns and there's certain like, like initiations and then loss of belief, like loss of initiation, right? Like on the, on the, on the back ends. And like, that's actually kind of a good thing. Like this, this kind of like analyzing, like why I am the way that I am, like it helps to happen in groups, right? Like the same, the same way that would happen like in a, in a, in a group of friends. Right. So the, the second thing was, you know, you, you put an emphasis on the, your desires no longer being dictated by a, for lack of better words, uh, oppressive hierarchical big other, Mm -hmm. but more exploring what your desires are via this process of bringing the unconscious to conscious consciousness. But isn't it, isn't the ego or maybe I'm, I'm getting it mixed up, but isn't the ego also somewhat of a, an illusion or it's, it's not a a substantial thing that's, that's static, Mm -hmm. right? So how is it just a, an ongoing process of always analyzing, uh, I don't mean that in a psychoanalytic way, but just yeah, in a yeah. colloquial way, analyzing what our desires are. Yeah. You know, what, no, how does I, that work? I think so. And I think that that's like the only kind of responsible way to like, you like, so like the ego is really good at censoring thoughts, right? Like the ego is like really good at saying like, uh, oh, you were about to say that, like, better not say that because then people think poorly of you or whatever and people like keeping on the podcast it, think you're an idiot yeah Good right job. yeah so like the the ego is always doing things like that like the ego is a crafty little bastard and like it, it's always censoring it's always making mistakes it's always misidentifying it's always over investing um that's just like who we are as conscious beings like we're always investing too much we're always making mistakes or whatever um and so like why would you ever want to stop analyzing like why you do what you do right like it doesn't mean you have to get all melancholic about it and like get depressed about it but like why why would you ever want to stop being a curious interested person who uh, like tries to like investigate why you do the things that you do and like try to put some reflection so that we can i don't know maybe treat each other better like at the end of the day right uh, so I'm not but crazy? yeah, but like the, no, but the process is like never over, like, uh, well until you die and the process is over. But, um, as, as long as you're like a human being, like in relationship with other human beings, like the, yeah, just like thinking through like, why am I the way that I am? And like, how am I reacting is like, uh, I don't know. It's like a minimum of being a decent human being, I guess. And, and yeah, uh, for the think. minimum. Yeah. Yeah. The absolute minimum. Yeah. There we go, Dan. So, <laughs> so what do you, what? I don't mean that as an insult though. Like, I think that's actually a really <laughs> good know, question because it sounds like very melancholic, but, uh, but yeah. So, so like, I don't know, like either what's happening or what do you do when you can't, when you've had kind of your desire given to you from the other and that goes away, mm-hmm. how do you decide like what's the next desire to help me move forward? Um, 
Cause I know I've experienced that because mine was always, um, couch and call language. Mm-hmm. And so when that fell apart, like the, often the big question for me has been like, I don't like, which is the right way to go. Oh yeah. And there's no answer for that. And I'm, I'm but I need, I've also talked to people like, I'm not the only one that's gone through that, but like, what's going on there that you, like you have a lot of things you can do, a lot of things you're passionate about, but like knowing how to pick mm-hmm. becomes a real, it's a really weird space to be stuck in. Yeah. I don't think that there's a really good answer for that. Like, and, and I think that's why it's so, I mean, this is kind of like another like place where I would say to people like that story is like boring, but you should it be is happy with it because yeah. it's really common. Okay. Right? Like it's, it's boring because it's so common. And I've right? never heard anyone say that. No, like, but I mean, to like, be honest, like I, oh, really? in, in over I mean, like, does that sound this, I don't hope it doesn't sound dismissive, no, no, no. but like people seem to like, like it when I say that, but um, no, I think if you just actually, left it at boring, it would be dismissive, but no, it's, no it, but in like, context, it makes sense. Yeah, I think like, it's really important to say it to people, especially maybe some of the people that are listening to you to say like, like this is happening a lot, especially oh, yeah. in America. Yeah. Like well, this store, this evolution out of evangelicalism is boring because yeah. Well, in a sense, it's especially even more boring in my world because like I do like religious studies and most people in that world, like how like overbelieved at some point and we're all kind of like in a process of like trying to figure out like how we got to be yeah. the way that they are. So like my whole profession is like that, you know? And, um, so, uh, so there's that aspect, but, um, but I think that also people kind of go through a similar pattern of like the moment that you kind of start losing that, like you resist for a while until you can't. And then when you stop desiring to repeat the pattern that you already know is not working and sometimes no isn't working for years, um, then you start to like disinvest, right? So we call this decathexis, like, which is like, if you found that your sports team is actually not that great, um, you begin the painful <laughs> process of decathexing, like decathecting from that object, right? This is happening right yeah. now. In yeah, our yeah. Season. So what's um, the word again? It's a uh, cathexis or cathecting. Cathecting. Yeah, it's called cathecting. Well, cathexis is is a is a fancy old like psychoanalytic term for like the investment. So like when I talk about like theology as being an investment into objects, it's it's object cathexis and then it becomes narcissistic cathexis. Um, so it's investment into the object and then that object becomes a narcissistic part of you. Right. So like I, I love my wife who is a person in the world, but then like she becomes part of me. So I like the, the cathexis is double, right? So doctrines work that same way, right? There's no reason for me to care about this particular idea, but then it feels like it's part of me. So if you insult that idea then I feel like insulted or whatever. Um, so that's happening all the time. And when you start withdrawing your, like your investment, into a certain idea, then you immediately want to put it somewhere else, right? And like that's where the story gets so boring because people, the moment that they start and in, stop investing into something that they already know doesn't work, um, they pull back and try to put it into something else. So you try to put it into like a more progressive theologian, or like some people go like extreme opposite end and they're like, ah, Neil deGrasse Tyson or like some new atheist or something like that. They try to like replace the priest figure with like somebody else, like who can be that same figure. Um, and then like they're, they're sort of like uh in it, I mean in some people just kind of like disinvest very slowly because like they never had a heightened investment in the first place. And those are the people that just kind of walk away. Right. But people who really invested in a face don't just walk away. Like they don't just stop not believing enough. Right. Like something happens 
which causes like this dramatic rupture, even if it happens over the course of years, like the gears were set in motion at some point. Um, people who really, really buy into stuff, um, don't just like fade away, right? Like something happens to, to cause that rupture. Um, and then that decathexis process, that disinvestment process usually gets resolved by trying to put that investment right back into something else. So again, like science or logic and reason and atheism or just like uh, some like progressive religious figure or something like that. Like you try to put that investment into a new bucket um, and then that bucket, actually, I don't think that that's necessarily all that bad because that bucket will serve you for a while. Um, but like check back in five years later. And if you're still in that same place, then like maybe you haven't, act- maybe, you ha- maybe you haven't actually thought that much, right? Like maybe, um, maybe there's, maybe there's like a better way, but also like, I, I don't want to like judge people's process because like that, that process is all like very painful for a lot of people. So like people kind of go through it at their own pace and some people disinvest very, very quickly, like in the course of a year and then they're a whole different person and they have no like more anger. Some people are like decades on and they're still pissed off about things like, I feel like I was kind of like in an angry phase for like a good like three, five years and I still get angry about stuff that I was Mm -hmm. raised with like here and there. Like at this point, like I'm luckily in a profession as a theologian where nobody believes things too much, right? Um, So like I don't feel like the pressure to like be expected to believe something in a certain way. So like I don't feel personally attacked on a day-to-day basis. So it's very, it's pretty rare for me to get angry about any of that stuff. But but I I definitely still have those in investment sources. So like, I don't know, people go through this like at their own pace and some people do it fast, some people don't. Uh, but there's definitely a trajectory and there's, there's certain patterns that you see kind of repeated almost as, as if they were tropes. It's almost as if we're all human beings that like do certain things the same way. Right. Uh, anyways, yeah, I feel like I'm going on now. So let's, let's, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I've been wanting to say something forever, but oh, yeah. there, there's like one question. Dude, I've got like 15,000 things in my head right now. Thanks a lot, Ted. I know. Uh, you're, you're really got, good at that. I've got like, I, you're going to have to There's one question that I do have okay. to ask. Yeah, sure. Anytime. Well, I <laughs> live you, here now, so. Do you want to, whatever? No, I've got, dude, I've got like pages of stuff here. We, we can do the whole things on like each of the soup. So this is like one super awful thing I've explored for a while. And then we can do like each new chapter of awful thing. That, that sounds I'm like studying another my next the stuff. awful podcast. Yeah. Like, the awful I do, podcast. I do have some, I, I this that. is one thing that was swimming in my head when you were talking too. how I can recall the last five years I was moving in a more of a theopolitical realm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that I stopped being a vocational pastor Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't paid anymore for doing the thing that the crowd wanted me to do. Oh, see, this is now all now making sense. And you guys. just stopped. You didn't do it for free. Uh, my, so my wife, he does it went, for free my wife now. went into residency. So this, this is a new round that I'm in, but in this transitionary period, I started writing things online. I started blogging about things that you got fired for and then other things like this. So I had a friend who finally, even like two years ago of an old church that I was at years ago had said, Ryan, I remember when you used to just write about Jesus and that was it. You know, can hmm. you just get back to that? And I was simply writing about how um, the the oppressive systems that are at play within certain people that will not be mentioned and the supporters of the that person who will not be mentioned. Okay. We have not mentioned the name, by the way. We're doing really good guys. Donald oh, J. Yeah. Trump. Why did you do it? Because sometimes you have to name the okay, thing. Okay, we named it. So I and and then I, I took a step back and I, I read all the comments in this whole thread. It was weird. It was a couple of years ago. And I was like, this is all to me very theological. It's just it but it was 
a trajectory that I saw myself on from even years past of how I was moving and seeing the historical Jesus and watching this kingdom of heaven on earth and understanding Rome and the first century Jewish world, all the things that we would now say, oh yeah, that's boring, Ryan. We all studied that five, 10 years ago. But at but I started to see it become more tangible in the 21st century. So here I have somebody who is, you know, calling my name. And I liked it better when you were just spiritual Ryan Jesus, not tangible political Ryan Jesus. So it makes sense. So if you're getting paid by the people to not do that, because if let's say I was still working at a church, uh-huh. I probably would have deleted that whole thread. But I didn't because I'm like, and and you had said this in in your book. I forgot what chapter when you're talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther. How oh yeah, you know the minute that he is excommunicated, he's free. Oh yeah. Well, and who doesn't know that? Like, who doesn't know like when you like have a breakup between like partners or friends or like work relationships? Like, it's it's the moment where you no longer have the option to go back. That you, in a sense, become free, right? But yeah, so but, but, yeah, but to totally be free for most people in a capitalistic system, especially within ministry and in the spiritual setting, you have people who can't, they, in a sense, they really can't be free if their family depends on their paycheck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we, and this is my beef with Rob Bell often, and I will say his name. I love Rob Bell. I think he's great. He's doing a lot of good in the world. He's, but he always talks about just be free and do your thing. And you know, if you, maybe, maybe it's a hobby. Well, you can't say that to people who have been following you for years who have to provide for their families. And they're, and let's say they're, they're, they're the male pastor in their family and their wife stays at home with the kids and their wife hasn't been, hasn't worked in like 10 to 20 years. So all of a sudden you're going to expect your your spouse to make money when she hasn't been in the business world for 10, 20 years. I mean, this is stuff where I go, this is great in theory, but practically we're, we are enslaved to a system. How do we really get free from that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah. I, and one of the ways that I like kind of frame like the, the gravity of the problem for people who don't know, like how like student loans work today, <laughs> um, is like your hourly you know, rate. So I, well, I always say like, okay, I mean, well, it's the same like in a professor world. Cause like we like, we're like, like way, way overeducated. Like there's, there's no job that requires you to have more education than being a professor. And then like we make 10 to $12 an hour for like most of us make $20,000 a year. Right. Like that's the, the majority of income. You right? write books and it takes you like five years to break even. Yeah, something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, books yeah. Have no like, money. Like, yeah. So, um, cause you get like a dollar book. So like after like three years, maybe you've covered your coffee budget from like writing it. Right. Um, but yeah, but like with like the pastoral, world, they kind of say like, sometimes like you have to understand that like you have people who come out of college and go into seminary and take out like a hundred thousand dollars in student mm-hmm. loans. And one of the things they learn for like, I don't know, for instance, is like how we have 5,300, uh, like first millennium Greek manuscripts and not any two of them are the exact same and then you are like have like a church that's like oh yeah we'll hire you and give you like a living wage where you can pay back your student loans and give you health care and like 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 the, the option to maybe have a house someday um only if you pretend to not know any of the stuff that you just learned for the last two three years yeah. right sign the faith just, statement inerrant yeah yeah like word of anytime God. anytime you somebody signs a statement of faith right like that has like an inerrancy clause that means that person either went to a really bad seminary or is fine with lying about what they 
they learned about in seminary. Right? There's mm-hmm. no such thing as a biblical scholar that like believes that junk, right? Like, cause like part of what biblical scholarship is, is actually looking Pointed at the errors. That out, yeah. Like that, like, like that's actually the part of like the process is like looking at how those things don't match up. Right. Like there's just no such thing as like a serious scholar who's in an inheritance. It's just a ridiculous idea. Um, but like, if you are in that situation, like you're saying, like, okay, like I've got like a family and like, I've got these responsibilities. I'm never going to get this job. I had this one shot. All they want me to do is like, just affirm that I believe this. They don't even really expect me. Like they're paying me to lie to them. So like when a group says we will give you whatever you want, as long as you lie to us, like what's, who's actually at fault there? Like what's the actual injunction? Are they, do they understand that they're lying? Do they, do they want the truth? Do they actually not want the truth? Are you actually performing a service by like not telling the truth? Right. Um, I couldn't do that. Right. Like, so I think it's that, that's why I kind of like went the, the academic route is like, I kind of told myself, I, I really want to be in a position where I don't ever have to lie to a reader or like to an audience. And like, if I say something, that I actually think like, God forbid, like I don't lose my job over it. Um, or I can just tell my students like what I think. So like I've really intentionally had to like think ahead and put myself in that situation because like that would just weigh on my conscience all the time. But to people who do play around with that language and try to play with metaphor, like, I don't know. I feel like some of my friends do it really well, but I feel like most of them are in congregations that are a bit more like open-minded about things. And I don't know any friends that teach in a super close-minded congregation that seem like they're in a very good place. So my advice there would be to um, get out, but that's easier yeah, said than done. It seems right? like the congregations, they can actually pay for not just the pastor, but the full staff. I mean, uh-huh. we're talking like massive programs and now we get into the mega churches. It's more of a certainty model. It's more of a, you have to affirm these things regardless if you believe them or not, you know what yeah, I'm saying? I just don't understand We're, why anyone yeah. want to do that. It seems very boring, but some people do, but, but, that, I guess, but, that, but goes, that goes to about almost what 50 something percent of people who think the world's going to end by 2050, like, which mm-hmm. we may get to at some point. Oh yeah. That's the majority of well, the uh, people of machine. faith in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is. Um, yeah. It's one big, like toxic, like live machine that basically just serves the interest of wall street. Um, and has like deep trends that are mostly racial and anti-black and now it's destroying like our education system and like destroying the climate in the process. So yeah, so it's like a, yeah, it's a, it's a whole big like, uh, situation. And, um, I don't know if you're in that situation, like I don't have good explanation cause like I might've stayed in that system for a long time if I had not been forced to leave. Right. Like I, I didn't have the option. I mean, I was, I could have reentered at some point, I guess, but like after I lost my job, I just kind of said like, I don't want to be in this situation anymore. Like I don't want to have to worry about lying again. And which is kind of naive. Like I was kind of youthful naivety to think that like the role of the professor is to always speak the absolute truth and all of the truth and et cetera. Cause like no, no job is completely like that, but it's definitely a lot more like that than the pastor it would have ever been. Um, so like I, I've not yet had to curtail facts or opinions even, uh, I mean, I, I self curtail right in order to like not unnecessarily alienate students over like political and economic ideas and stuff. But, um, I don't know. I'm not in a position where I have to, to censor myself. Even when I've taught at a Christian university, it was very much like it was that Lutheran ideal of like, as they always say, like, you know, report the truth, however you find it or whatever. I mentioned that several times with us. Like it's a Lutheran Lutheran axiom of like, like find, find what you find. And then like you have responsibility to come back to your community and explore the thing. Right. And that sort of comes out of that, that period where like, 
during the Reformation, like the way that communities learned was like most of them didn't have printing presses or the ability to read because like like literacy was 13%. So like, how do you read? Well, it's like, or how do you learn? It's cause like scholars go off into the world, study at university and then come back home and report the truth, how you find it. Right. So like you have a responsibility to, um, to spread knowledge. Um, I think that's great. Um, unfortunately that's not the role of like a, a, a cleric in basically any tradition. Right. So, um, so that's not what your role is. Yeah. And I think in, in, situations like yours and mine and maybe a few others, like we can say, well, we're, we're an anomaly. We're not the majority, but here's, here's a quick transition that kind of will make us breathe a bit for those who are listening. And you can say, take a mental break for a second, but hypothetically, Ted, if you had to sit under a cynic or a fool in the pulpit, knowing that like your labels pretty well, Mm -hmm. uh, which one would you choose? Oh, the cynic. Cause they're so much more fascinating cause they're like awful and evil. Um, and they're just like a a fascinating study in, in character. So you like like the antihero in movies and television shows. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I, I mean like, I don't know, like it's, 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 it's much more interesting to be like, you know, what's going on, like where the cues, like what, where the resonance is like in this audience, like why are people fascinated by this guy that clearly doesn't believe like whatever he's saying, like that's, that's kind of an interesting game to, to play. You can kind of like come up with interesting things about human behavior. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that that's like mentally healthy to do too much. It's just kind of a fun question. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of make you angry as well, but like, is there a pastor or a, like, have you caught yourself being caught up in a sermon or a presentation in recent history? No, nothing. No, I just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not part of that world anymore. So, um, no. So like, that's, that's just not my, my thing anymore. So I, I actually, it's been, it's been quite a while since I've been to church regularly or anything. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So no, honestly, no. Can we talk about anxiety? Sure. Sure. Because that not? seems to be something that you, I mean, it's a big part of your work. So you say that it's not doubt, it's the cause of doubt. Mm-hmm. So could you explain that? And then I know we have a question from somebody the other night regarding anxiety as well that we'll get to. Okay. Yeah. So anxiety is kind of like the primary affect in psychoanalysis. It's kind of the affect of all affects. So anxiety is the spring out of which lots of human activity happens. It has nothing to do with instincts like my desire for food, sleep, sex, like whatever else. Like those are instinctual needs. It's connected more to the drive, which is like culture, language, experience, like the things around me that I perceive that tell me not just what I instinctually need to do as an animal, but like what is a human I need to do in order to like be a decent human being or whatever. Um, but Lacan kind of put it this way, like anxiety is, anxiety is like the question, you can think of it as the question from the big other, what do you want? Is it when the big other if, or any other ask you, what do you want? Um, it's a question that fills you with like, oh my God, like I'm feeling kind of anxious. Like I'm not sure what I want. Right. And also if you are asking somebody else, what do you want? It's because you're like, you can't figure them out and you want to understand them better, but like there's some sort of gap, right? Like, so, so Lacan kind of like based the idea of anxiety around like the question, what do you want or what's bugging you, right? Like it's something you feel anxious about if you're asking it, but also if you're receiving this question. So I just kind of joke that like, this is why like uh, the greatest like uh, political documentary of all time is of course, uh, you know where I'm going with this, the notebook, right? Uh, So like, right. What do you want? Right. Like there's that question. 
it's got like a theme of repetition and like the repetition of the desire story every day or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like that scene where Ryan Gosling is like screaming, like, what do you want? Right. Like that's anxious to ask to your partner, but it's also very anxious to be like asked in return. Right. Um, so Lacan kind of said, like, we always think that doubt is like something that creates anxiety. Um, but he actually says, no, it's actually the opposite. We need to think of anxiety coming first and then we repress or disavow or foreclose and we create symptoms out of that. So it's actually anxiety is something that's sort of primal. And then the way we respond to it creates the symptom. So, um, so again, it's like, so anxiety and, uh, so, and then the symptom after that, right? So anxiety is not the result of doubt, anxiety is the cause of doubt, right? So in other words, you don't choose to doubt and then feel anxiety, right? Like you can start doubting and you can kind of like suppress your doubts or like foster your doubts in order to kind of go in a new direction. But like, in a sense, the anxiety is already kind of forming without your say in the matter about like, okay, this idea is not working or this relationship is not working or like whatever I'm doing is not going to work out well for me, right? And then you start to feel the doubts like, oh my God, what am I going to do after that, right? So we think of it as like the opposite, like I start to doubt things and then I feel anxiety. And so Lacan's kind of like, no, actually like anxiety is like a very primal human like affects, right? And then it also disperses into other affects like joy, love, shame, rage, like, you know, like lots of other kinds of emotional affective experience. But anxiety is kind of like at the core of a lot of human behavior, a lot of emotion, like anxiety is the thing that sets the the gears running. Another way he kind of says it is like, you can think of anxiety as like a barrier removed almost. Like if, if somebody says, um, Hey, you want this thing, you can't have it then you have like desire for that thing that you can't have, right? Like don't put your hand in the cookie jar. What does the kid want to do? Like put the hand in the cookie jar or whatever. Um, if you like remove that barrier and you say, you can put your hand in the cookie jar if you want and, you know, just kind of stare down your child. Then like this child like thinks like, uh, I don't know. Like, you know, it kind of depends on how well adjusted your child is, right? Like what kind of anxiety they would feel that well, that's a great example, like using like basic, like borderline child abuse as, as the example here. Right. But, um, but the idea is like Lacan says, okay, so we can think of anxiety as like a barrier taken away. If somebody says, Oh, Hey, uh, you desire this thing. Uh, you can't have it. Um, that generates desire, but not anxiety. If someone says, uh, Oh, see this thing you want, uh, you can have it. Like the only thing that's stopping you is you, uh, you can make like whatever change in your life to get whatever you're wanting. Right. Like that's, that should be no problem. It's the foundation of American capitalism. Right. Like, and that's, that's anxious, right? Like when you, when, when someone tells you, oh, actually like there's no barrier, you can have whatever you want. Like, why can't you figure out like the ways that you're sabotaging yourself? That's all of a sudden like, ugh, that's, that's an anxious thing. Like the moment that I think I could actually get what I want is the moment that I want to retreat and say, Uh, I don't know. That stops the game. Like I'm kind of worried, like what's the next thing I'll want after that. Right. Like, I don't know. Like, so this is kind of like the way, you know, people talk about like how, like, getting like to be with the person who you desire can sometimes like kill the relationship because like once the, like the mystique and like you like are able to get like that can have an effect of like killing the desire. And like, now it's like, now what? Like what's the next thing I'm supposed to desire? Right? Like, so if I'm the type of person who needs, 
needs to endlessly go from object to objects, then perhaps I get more worried or whatever. So I don't know. That's like five different ways to kind of explain that that same thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, one one thing I mentioned the other night. I'll say this really quick is like Lacan explained it with this mirror phase, right? When the infant first looks in a mirror, what and recognizes that the reflection as itself rather than another person. What does the infant do? The infant turns around to check in with the caregiver, like, you know, to see if the infant, like the caregiver is saying like, good job, infant, like you've got it. That's you. Right. Like, and he kind of says, how interesting is it that you got to do it in a high pitched voice, Ted? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I don't talk to infants that much, but, uh, and one day, but, but right now, like, so, so the caregiver is trying, you know, like saying, you know, ratifying what the infant is saying. And Lacan says, how interesting is it that like our first moment of like self-awareness of like recognizing our image in an, in a mirror as ourself and like having enough cognizance, enough ego development to have a concept of self in the mirror. How interesting is it that it comes coeval with this moment of demanding that a big other ratify what we're seeing, right? Like, so we immediately want the big other, like we feel anxious enough that we have to like, like, ah, big other, like, what am I supposed to see right now? Like, tell me, tell me that I'm right or whatever. So he's kind of like, so that, that, that the demand for the big other is, is, is instant. Right. Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, so where else can we, do we go else, so somewhere else with, with that? that? Like, are we seeing this um, in research, like with fMRI or anything like that, where we see the development of anxiety before it's voiced like have have we been able to prove that, that? I, know. I don't know i mean i I know about fMRIs in terms of like the way that brains respond to things like prayer or like different ideas like that, like we know like fight or flight gets triggered. For example, when uh, I say something that you disagree with, right? Mm-hmm. Like your body gets ready to kill me or run away from me or whatever. Right. Um, and we know other things about like different parts of the brain that respond to different like spiritual states that are also very analogous to like different, like if I'm listening to music for a long time, my brain behaves roughly the same as like, you know, like if I'm in intense prayer for a long time or meditation, meditation. Um, but yeah, but I actually, sorry, uh, to get back on track though, I don't, I don't actually know, um, much of the, the neuroscience around, around that state of anxiety. I'm sure that's done, but I, I'd have to be honest. I, I don't know that research. I thought about asking you this in private, but I wanted to do it in a public forum. Oh, good. Don't worry. <laughs> I feel the anxiety coming. Okay. The doubt is creeping in. Okay. <laughs> where does, if at all, where does the concept or where does love kind of fall into your work? So love um, is something that I rarely mention. And I mention it actually kind of as this, um, one of the polarities that, um, like that we talked about this cathaxis, this investment. And I think this is one of the more disturbing, but it, it feels true to me aspects of psychoanalysis is that the investment, the cathexis into an object or to another person is primary and then that gets attached to affections so affects such as love and hate um but it's like the the investment of the ego into another person seems to be primary so let me put it this way if you really love somebody and they betray you 
it's very common to immediately feel hate, right? Or if you really love an idea or like a tradition or something, right? Or like a, you have like this close relationship with a family member or something like, and, and there's a betrayal, it's very easy for that to turn to hate very quickly. So it's almost as a sense like, like the investment into the person, like of the ego's investment into another ego is, is primary and that can oscillate as love or hate or various other affects, I guess as well. But like, so love and hate are kind of the, the opposite, right? So like this is kind of, we talked oh, about always like coming in pairs. Yeah. In a sense. Right. Like, and we kind of talked about like, a, like a few weeks ago, you and I were talking about like the letters between Freud and Einstein where Einstein's kind of like, we could remove the desire to hate each other and never have war again. And Freud's like, yeah, like, I don't know. Cause I, I'm pretty sure actually if you remove the ability to hate another person, you'd have to remove the ability to love something enough to fight for it also. Right. Like that, that seems like kind of intuitive, right? Like, like love re- yeah. almost requires the possibility of, of, of something other than that. Yeah. Like, or if you never had another reaction to like, um, like a romantic partner that you broke up with, like it would probably require that, like you didn't like care that much about the relationship. Right. Like, so, I mean, like people can break up well. Right. But like, you're, there's still going to be some like awkwardness if you felt anything at all. Right. So, um, so like to me, to, to me, like, I think it's, 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 it feels like a very kind of dark observation. It, It feels intuitively true. And I don't know that I'll always feel this way, but to me, it feels like one way to think of, of love is like one of the many ways that, 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 um, investment in another person such that I care enough about them, that they feel like a part of me that I identify with them. Um, like that, that to me is like one of the ways that love feels. Um, and I think that that's, we need to be kind of sensitive to that, um, especially at a cultural level and not to say nothing of like an individual level, but we need to be like careful about that idea culturally, because like when, when you are deprived of certain signifiers or things that you really identify with, things that you really could have loved before can oscillate to hate very quickly, um, and create a lot of disruption. So, um, so I don't know, that's, 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 that's where I go. Like no, first off, that's good. That. Cause I, I really, the reason I asked was more as if, if you have love as, a, a primary drive or desire once you've brought the big other, the hierarchical big other into your consciousness and maybe you're going to replace it with a more, you know, something like love or compassion as, as a guiding principle for lack of better words, like Mm -hmm. that's good. I wanted to hear like what you thought about that. And it seems like there can be a dark side in a, in a weird way, even at a cultural or political level, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sometimes we also like love and hate the same object at the same time. Right. Like, so that's, that's even like a, a further complicating factor. Like I love you, but like, I hate like what you like cause me to love or something like that. Right. Like, uh, or like, just think of like, like it is a, okay, let's do like, the moment of levity. Like, let's just think about how much liberals love to hate Trump. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so like, I mean, so that there's like the, there can be like the aspect of love and hate kind of commingled at the same like time. To, right. Like, when you have someone that's kind of toxic in your life and you, you love them and care about them because of the relationship that you might have with them. Mm -hmm. But when those behaviors come out, 
it's just really hard to like keep yourself in that space. Yeah, sure. Or like, or even to return to or like our previous example, like, like when people ask kind of the same questions about like their religious upbringing, like year after year, it's like at some point, like maybe you actually just like really love hating yeah. the same figure who you feel like misled you or something. Right. right. Uh, but yeah, but like we, yeah, we can do that with, uh, with like individuals that we can't get away from like family members to like, uh, well, without detaching from, from family traditions or whatever for sure so yeah so back to my earlier proposed rabbit trail okay what is there any hope um i don't know i I would like to think that there's hope but like i feel like in a sense we have to actually be like really pessimistic about our situation me and dan were discussing this um like in relationship because okay so my next project is i'm it's kind of like a, a kind of a big study of different factors of like white evangelicalism and white nationalism so um so it like in each chapter is like against something so there's one that's against sexuality that's like you know like the whole thing with like purity culture and like how do you get like millions and millions of people to pretend to not like have any sort of sexual de- desire or like pretend to not have sex when we know that like 98% of people do have sex before marriage. Right. So like nobody's playing this game, but everyone's pretending those rings don't work. They, apparently not. Yeah. So, um, so like, so things like that. Um, and then, uh, I, I'm doing one today called against knowledge. That's kind of tracing like the, the racial origins of like moves against like, uh, public education, how that ties into like science skepticism, alternative curriculums. Like I grew up using curriculums that were my history book literally began with Genesis. Right. Um, so like, like how did, how did, so like all of these things kind of tie together. But, um, one of the things that I, so the, the, the only chapter in this new book that I have completely, uh, completed is about this kind of resonance machine between, uh, evangelical apocalyptic belief on the one hand and like wall streets need to deny the future for like energy interest, deregulation, capital accumulation on the one hand. Um, And uh, to me, that's a very, so it's kind of about this, like the relationship between apocalyptic belief and climate change. Right. Um, and we live in like a really dire time and like, like, I don't think that people like realize just how like serious our situation is. Right. Um, we have like an energy crisis in addition to an environmental crisis. Energy crisis is like, we've just never discovered anything with a return on investment like oil. Like it's it like when we first found it, it was like 100 energy units, 150 energy units, uh, would return for every energy unit we invested to get to oil. Right now we're down to with tar sands somewhere between one and seven to one and thirteen return on investment. Right, like in the, that number will eventually drop to zero. Alternatives are usually in the one to four to one to ten range, which is what coal is and wood is. Like like we are, we are literally losing the ability to draw oil out of the ground and like so so we have this like energy crisis on the one hand, right? Which is hopefully a technological thing that we can solve. But we also are on the verge of a mass extinction event, right? Where like millions and millions of species are going to die. The water. oceans, yeah, the we're going to have wars over water the same way we have wars over oil. The oceans are going to rise at least six feet by the end of this century, maybe 10 or more. And the last time we had this much carbon, like three, like 403 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere was during the Pliocene epoch three billion years ago. And the oceans were 60 feet higher at that point, right? 70%. We weren't here six billion years ago. Yeah, right, right, right. So 60. He meant 6,000. Sorry, sorry, six. three million. Uh, I don't know if you have, but 60 feet higher, right? Um, 70% of humanity lives within 
10 miles of a coast or a major riverway. Like we are going to watch entire cities have to displace. We're going to have wars over new borders that are literally physically redrawn by like, like rising coastlines. Um, we are going to watch people, uh, get put into camps and new border regimes and like, you know, like starved very intentionally when they could have prevent, like we are on the, the verge of a huge deal. Right. And the, the horrifying lesson I draw from that is that one in three people in America, like they depend, it kind of like the very survey to survey, but like roughly one in three people in America will report over and over that they believe Jesus comes back. Right. Uh, this century before the 22nd century, there is no 22nd century. Right. Um, and among evangelicals, it's between high fifties and low seventies percent worldwide. It's somewhere in the like one in seven percent range. Right. So like we're dealing with like this mass extinction catastrophic event on the future that we can track. And like the only consistent thing that scientists get wrong about climate change is like, it always ends up being worse than our projections. Right. Like that's been Every like kind time. of the, that's been kind of like the projections. Like people are right that like scientists are, are getting a lot of things wrong, but it, it's getting wrong because actually we find out it's a lot worse. Right. And if these Antarctic sheets that we're looking at right now break off, like the oceans are going to rise 20 feet, like in like 10, 15 years instead of, instead of more than a hundred years. Right. It's like we're like, we're in the, like a catastrophic zone where like new Orleans and New York, have to evacuate like much less like lots of other people in the world that have no chance so so like i'm interested in like okay so like what does it say that a society actually gets pleasure in like 60 million copies of left behind series being sold right like um or like hey uh like i'm super happy that like i know that the end is near and if things are getting worse that's just a sign that we're on the right team and like the bible prophecies are coming true like what does it mean that we live in a society that is literally excited that the world is actually ending and it's not ending with fire from heaven it's the heat of carbon um and right now at least 120 million, some people say closer to a half million people per year are dying from climate change. Uh, like this is like, this is like, 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 like not that different than Holocaust scale, like events, like right now it's going to accelerate. Right. So, um, so like we, there's a theological drive that seems to enjoy that. Right. Um, so yes. Yeah, so, okay. So ending on a very dark note here, but, um, is the there, a, is there a hope? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I think there is no, hope if we have an optimistic view of the future. I think we need to say like very seriously, no, like we are, we are literally on the verge of, of having to find a way to evacuate earth, which will only happen for like the super rich, like Elon Musk types. Right. Um, or we're going to have to do something, have to do it fast. And we can't do that if we're playing around with these like stupid ideas about like Jesus coming back and like not taking seriously, like our responsibility to think about the future so that like maybe we can have great grandkid generation like live without like burning alive or fighting for air. Right. So, um, so I think that actually it helps to have, so I think like the optimism is actually kind of like, if we want to be optimistic, I think it's good to have that rooted in like a very kind of catastrophic pessimism of like, like, like I'm hopeful we actually could resolve these issues fairly simply. Like the, the technologies are not quite there, but like we basically know what directions we need to do. Um, and we also need to have lots of really good conversations with people who, whose ideology is like supportive of this without realizing it. Like, cause like, you know, grandpa does not mean to like support the end of human civilization. Right. 
but he does, right? And so we and we need to have those conversations. And those those conversations are theological, right? Like there's like a like an optimism. God created the world. We can't do anything to it. Like, no, that's like, that's bullshit. Like we actually can, and we are, um, and we're killing like, uh, millions and millions of people like, like year after year. So like doing this, right. So, and it's going to get worse. So, yeah. So I think that like, if we want to have hope, we need to realistically ground it in like, um, that, I mean the same way that you do about any hard conversation where like, okay, like we can change, but like, this is serious and we need to treat it seriously. Um, and it's like, we're in a dire situation. So I, I, look I don't at know. It. So like that, that's the way I think of it. So yeah, sorry. There was this very low, like we had notes, the same but. exact conversation when we were talking in private. Uh-huh. And I, I, I left that conversation thinking, you know what, what Tad's doing is, is diagnosing, right? You can't treat something until you come face to face. You have cancer or you are an alcoholic. And then you can look at, because at some point there is no possibility of hope. Right. Um, and I don't know if you even would agree with this approach, but I think like grandpa that has X, Y, Z beliefs, you could even within grandpa's own framework still create like, you know what, you know, God made us to be good stewards of the earth, whatever happened about caring for the, you know, seventh generation and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if that's, Maybe that's worth it for some people. For others, it may not even be worth yeah, it because it, it's more and catastrophic. It might work for some. Like it, it probably doesn't work for most, and that's kind no. of like the terrifying thing. And it, but it might work for some, right? Like so, um, and that, that's kind of like the like the hard truth element is like kind of. I, I think that's like maybe what a lot of us who do this kind of thought like think is like to, to what extent do people need the hard truth? Is that like counterproductive or helpful? Because like the hard truth is that like. Uh, where the soul hold out in the world from like the Paris Accord. So like, who's the most dangerous nation in the world? Uh, what's the greatest threat to civilization? What's clear in a way the most dangerous faith ever invented in the history of mankind? It is white evangelicalism in America, right? Like, and that's, and that's not like me trying to be hyperbolic. That's just like on the clear facts, like measured by just climate change alone to say nothing of nuclear weapons or like anything else that we're doing, um, on just climate change alone, like, like we all come from like the faith, which right now is like the most dangerous thing that like the world has ever seen as in terms of religion. Right. So like, how do we deal with that? How do we have conversations with people about that? Especially when it's spreading quickly into other parts of the world. Uh huh. Yeah. One of my best friends a couple weeks ago, we text all the time. He's in the other part of the world. I won't tell you where he is and who he is, but he said, Miller, what the fuck is up with dispensational eschatology and evangelicalism? And I said, Google John Darby. And he did. And he, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, re- he wrote me back about 30 minutes later going, shit, that's some messed up shit. So that's in your book, by the way. Oh yeah. yeah. John Darby. And the it, connection of like the Stuart right. oil money that like it's, funded dude, that, which is now supporting like theologically supporting oil. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's a weird relationship so, with oil. So we're going to leave a cliffhanger yeah. for people. Go buy the book, by the way. Yeah, the cynic yeah. and the fool. It's in there. Are they still on this, sale? Is that fake news or no? I, I don't know. There was a there was a uh, thing that might be temporary. Yeah, I don't actually know. Just go buy the book anyway. Yeah, he just, doesn't make money off of it. It'll be yeah, all for care, your own like, pleasure. Maybe it's helpful. <laughs> Do you, you text your friends? Google this and then buy this book. So thanks, Ted. Ted, where can people find you? By the way, um, I'm uh, at Ted Delay on Twitter. I'm, I have a Facebook page in addition to a, a personal profile. I have taddelay.com. Uh, the website, I don't use it for a whole lot of things, but I, I post new information occasionally. Um, and yeah, you can find me uh, 
Uh, you can find me at like a certain like uh, monolithic uh, retailer online that's like like forest themed. Uh, but you can also order me from like any any small independent bookstore. They can always order any book in, and they're very happy to do so. So support your local bookstore. But um, yeah, I'm also like one of the only Tad delays in all of history. So like I'm pretty easy to find just by a, a cursory Google search. So uh, yeah, so yeah. Sweet. Thanks for coming All to right. the show. Thank you. All right. Keep brewing. Cheers. 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 All right.